Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. We call this installment of the LGBT Law Notes edition of the podcast, Sodomy Law Comes Down. That's because we're finally talking about the Supreme Court of India's ruling that the Constitution protects an individual's sexual orientation. We will begin by chatting about that case with Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School. Art is chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Then I'm going to speak with Art about a federal district court that ruled that the U.S. State Department exceeded its authority under the Passport Act of 1926 when it denied a passport to a U.S. Navy veteran who is intersex and non-binary and does not identify as male or female. Lastly, we will talk about the federal court that ordered Wisconsin to cover transition medical costs for transgender state employees. And of course, as always, Art is going to surprise me with our Of Note segment. Let's dig in. On September 6th, the Supreme Court of India ruled that Section 377 of the Indian Penal Law, a Victorian-era statute banning, among other things, carnal intercourse against the very order of nature, as applied to consensual sexual intercourse between same-sex partners, violated Articles 14, 19, and 21 of the Indian Constitution. In so doing, the Court overturned recent precedent that upheld the constitutionality of that same law. Prior to the ruling, India was the most populous nation in the world that criminalized consensual gay sex. India's landmark Supreme Court ruling is a major victory for human rights and for LGBT people's right to privacy and non-discrimination. According to the Human Rights Watch, over 70 countries still criminalize consensual same-sex relations. Kenya and Botswana, both of which inherited versions of the Indian Penal Code during the colonial period, currently have cases pending before their courts that would also strike down laws outlawing consensual same-sex conduct. Other countries in which courts have struck down sodomy laws in recent years include Trinidad and Tobago and Belize. Art, tell us about this Indian Supreme Court case. We've been chomping at the bit, wanting to talk about this for some time, and now we finally can. Yeah, the, the Indian court system is very slow. Uh, <laughs> and and part, of the, part of the reason for that is that they have uh, like 30 members of their Supreme Court, and they have two judge panels and three judge panels and five judge panels, and they even recently had a nine-judge panel on one case. Oh. Uh, it's... it's uh, it's a puzzle to us trying to follow it, but we have to remember that India's population is three or four times as big as the U.S. population, oh. and we're getting by with set, with nine Supreme Court judges. I was going to say this might be a model for us going forward now <laughs> that we're facing the kind of court that we have. Yes, uh, we, we, we <laughs> might want to add 30. a few. We, we might want to <laughs> add a few, but uh, I mean, given the sheer volume of litigation generated by over a billion people, I can imagine they obviously need to have a bigger court, uh, but. The problem is that uh, this case was originally heard by a two-judge two panel. It was brought in the High Court of Delhi uh, by a actually an AIDS service organization, the NAS Foundation, mm. uh, years and years and years ago. This case goes back a long time. And part of their argument was that the existence of the uh, colonial-era sodomy law, Section 377 of the Indian Penal Law, uh, was impeding efforts to deal with the AIDS epidemic. Mm. That people wouldn't come forward for testing, 
Right. Because if you tested positive for HIV and it was same sex, then you violated the penal code and you might be prosecuted, et cetera. Wow. Uh, so, uh, in fact, the, the argument was even made in the U.S. Uh, back in the days of uh, Bowers versus Hardwick, which is the 1980s, you know, the hard, fiery time of the AIDS epidemic in this country when we didn't have any medications or anything. And the argument was made that the sodomy law was an impediment to uh, dealing with AIDS, and the Supreme Court paid no attention to that argument whatsoever. But in the India Supreme Court, uh, the two judge, uh, the single judge of the Delhi High Court had uh, ruled that the sodomy law violated the Constitution, and uh, there were demonstrations in the streets uh, in favor of the opinion. I mean, there was, it was That's so great. excited. Lots of people were coming out uh, because no one thought that it would get reversed. It was a very long, detailed, scholarly opinion, very soundly based on Indian precedents. But, and, and the government showed no inclination to appeal it, even though the government wasn't in favor of it. They showed no inclination to appeal it, but it seems... This is a peculiar quirk of Indian law, unlike U.S. constitutional law, where you have to have individual standing to participate in a case. In India, anyone, anyone can file a petition for review of a court decision. Wow. And so people who were offended by this decision, usually on religious grounds, filed an appeal. And a two-judge panel of the Supreme Court, after several years of procedural wrangling, reversed and uh, the ground of their reversal was mainly that they thought this was a legislative decision to be made, and they thought that gay people are such a tiny, tiny proportion of the population that it isn't even a major thing that should concern the Supreme Court of India. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was reversed, and then the judge who wrote the opinion retired the next day, <laughs> as if in disgrace, you know, yeah. or, you know, not show my face after issuing this decision, and outrage ensued. Uh, and, of course, since anyone can appeal a decision in India, people were coming out of the woodwork filing petitions to appeal that decision. Uh, and finally, uh, the, uh, the court, a, a panel of the court dealing with the petitions to re- repeal, agreed uh, after in the interim there had been several decisions that had seriously questioned this ruling. Uh, the intermediate uh, court ruling, the smaller Supreme Court panel, the case is called uh, Kushal, Suresh Kumar Kushal, mm-hmm. who was the first petitioner on the appeal. Uh, and uh, the court's unanimous five-judge verdict here. Uh, in, in the tradition of courts uh, in the British Commonwealth, the highest court, each judge usually writes their own opinion. Although in this case, one of the judges did just concur in the opinion by the chief justice. But uh, there were four opinions in the case. They totaled 495 pages yeah. in the PDF file issued by the court uh, holding its opinion. Uh, and they relied, different judges relied on different articles in the Indian Constitution. But we have at least one article that has a right of privacy. We have one article that has an equal protection mm-hmm. ideal. We have one article about freedom of speech, which uh, some of the just, justices found to be implicated here. Mm-hmm. We have one article prohibiting sex <coughs> discrimination, which one judge took on. Yeah. Uh, so y- y- they, they all agree that it's unconstitutional. Uh, and they also all agree, and this is an important point, 
that was singled out by our contributing writer in Law Notes, who did a, a masterly job of going through all of these Such opinions. A good job. Vito Marzano, who did a terrific job on this, one of our newest writers. Uh, the Chief Justice explained that the Indian Constitution follows what they call the Living Tree Doctrine. I loved reading about the Living Tree Doctrine. Tell us about this is, that. This is like our Living Constitution Doctrine yeah. that people talk about. The idea that constitutional provisions are not confined to what the drafters and ratifying generation would have thought they meant. That they embody general principles that it is up to the court to develop to meet changing understandings in society, changing developments. Uh, it is a living constitution, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to the uh, originalism that uh, was first introduced during the Reagan administration when Scalia was appointed to the court and has <laughs> since been embraced by a handful. Not even all of the Republican conservatives on the court are, are uh, pronounced originalists. But, I, I uh, love the section of the article that says um, it's a rebuke to constitutional interpretation known as originalism that has perverted U.S. jurisprudence since the Reagan era. Well, I think I think Vito's taken some some liberties I, there, but I, I I tell my writers, I you know, you can express yourselves. You can express yourselves <laughs> here in Law Notes. We are a journal of opinion, uh, not just a reporter. Uh, so. <clears throat> They say, we're, you know, we're out of step with the times. Yeah. Western democracies have been repealing sodomy laws, and their courts have been striking them down, and we got to get with the program, basically. Uh, and the fact that this was actually imposed on Indian society by our colonial occupiers back in the 1860s, we should we, we shouldn't necessarily consider this as an intrinsic part of Indian law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are even some arguments that as far as Indian culture goes, uh, this was definitely an imposition of Western values at the time, the Judeo-Christian values, as opposed to the values of the religions practiced in India. So uh, this decision, there is no further appeal at this point. The government has more or less agreed that uh, they're implementing it. And so you could take, could you take something on appeal to the whole 30? I don't think they sit Justices. on bank. Okay. I don't think they have an auditorium for that. <laughs> but uh, I think this is this is the the end for this case. Okay. Uh, I have seen nothing in the Indian press, and there is a pretty uh, pretty large and vocal Indian press in English that is reported on the Westlaw database that I consult for international news, mm -hmm. and there is no talk about this going any further. This is the end of the road for this case. That's great. Uh, so. Uh, in addition, uh, there's lots of dicta in these opinions mm -hmm. that can be used to pursue other goals, that can be used to push for anti-discrimination policies, that can be used to push eventually for marriage equality. Right. Uh, the court doesn't take it on in this case. And in fact, the government's intervention on this appeal was not to oppose uh, striking the sodomy law, but they said, confine yourself to that question. Mm. Don't rule on anything else. So there wasn't a Scalia um, on on this high court that said, who are we fooling? This is a parade of no. horribles. Because there was no dissent. It's going to lead to marriage there was, equality. There was no dissent. So it may lead to marriage equality eventually. Uh, it, it'll take some time. Yeah. India, everything moves slowly in India. I think yeah. it, it's partly because it's just such a huge country and it takes time to mobilize public opinion. Right. It takes time for new... Uh, legal doctrines to permeate through uh, a notoriously slow-moving judicial system. But as, as Vito reports, uh, 
within weeks, there was an opinion in the uh, the state of Kerala finding that the state had infringed on the rights of a lesbian when it committed her to a mental institution against her will because she wanted to live with her female partner. Mm. And her parents had prevailed on the court to order her to be confined. And uh, the court said no, that, that would violate her rights under this decision which says that one's sexual orientation is something that's protected by the Indian Constitution as yeah. a matter of, of liberty and freedom and equality and privacy. Wow. So it's a, a startling decision. And as you noted at the beginning, India was actually the largest democracy in the world that still had a sodomy prohibition. Mm -hmm. uh, the only country that's larger than India is Russia, and Russia abolished its repeal of sodomy laws years ago. Uh, they uh, they are not very gay friendly in Russia, but they don't they don't criminalize uh, consensual sodomy anymore. Wow. Well, I I enjoyed reading this article, which is of course the um, you know the main article or at least the the title article in Law Notes um, for October, and you know it was interesting to see. Um, just it it looks like there's some really great language in oh, here. Yeah. There's also you know. Vito notes that there are quotes, you know, from one of the justices who argues that people should read Oscar Wilde, two references to Dr. Martin Luther King, and including the line about the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And then just looking at all the various um, aspects of the Constitution that the court relied on in reaching their decision and toying with, you know, um, you know, contemplating uh, that sexual orientation alone is protected, but also the right to choose one's partner is protected, as you mentioned, um, talking about the, uh, discrimination on the basis of sex and whether sexual orientation um, comes under that. And it's one of the justices says... One cannot simply separate discrimination based on sexual orientation and discrimination based on sex because discrimination based on sexual orientation inherently promulgates ideas about stereotypical notions of sex and gender roles. It's just remarkable how much this case kind of mirrors the same constitutional arguments that we're seeing here in the U.S., though the constitutional provisions are... Are, are different. There's something in here called the Doctrine of Progressive Rights. Yeah, this is, this is Chief Justice Misra uh -huh. said that under Indian law, once a right is realized, the state cannot rescind that right at mm. a later date. And so this necessarily gives rise to the doctrine of non-retrogression, mm. that rights, individual rights under the India Constitution can only expand. They cannot contract. Yeah. And uh, this is uh, something that we hope the U.S. Supreme Court might buy into because we've achieved some wonderful recognition of rights over the past 15, 20 years. And now we have a really locked in conservative majority on the court with Brett Kavanaugh having wow. been confirmed. So let's hope that our court will apply stare decisis and will not uh, try to overrule Lawrence v. Texas or uh, Windsor or, or Burgerfell. Uh, people have, have expressed concern about those cases being overturned. I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is how narrowly or, or broadly they'll be construed 
as applied to other issues. And what you know, what we're, one of the things that we're worried about here is the the Gorsuch action in um, uh, what was the in case? Pavan. Of, uh, Pavan. Yeah, right. Giving right, a narrow reading to a right. Giving a very narrow read to a case that that almost that explicitly talks about the right to um, appear on a birth certificate. Um, so that's scary. And we just got another great ruling on that issue from the Supreme Court of Hawaii recently. Yeah. But uh, one thing to mention uh, before we go on to uh, to the other cases that we're talking about, what is going on with the U.S. Supreme Court? Because uh, since our hard. since our last podcast, Brett Kavanaugh has been confirmed after a very messy confirmation process, uh, and still pending before the court are cert petitions in three cases raising the issue of how Title VII should be construed in cases of discrimination involving sexual minorities, two involving sexual orientation, one involving gender identity. And here's where that stands. Uh, Originally, the clerk of the court had listed the two sexual orientation cases for the long conference, a week-long conference at the end of September when the court deals with all the cert petitions that had accumulated during the summer. But then they were removed from the list, and it turned out that a lawyer from Alliance Defending Freedom, which is representing the Harris Funeral Home in the gender identity case, had written to the clerk and suggested that the three cases, the three cert petitions, should all be considered together because they ultimately raise in a certain way the same question, even though sexual orientation and gender identity do involve somewhat different issues. Mm. They raise the question of whether Title VII's ban on sex discrimination can be broadly construed to encompass forms of sex discrimination not contemplated in 1964 when the statute was passed. Uh, and uh, Something tells me that the Alliance Defending Freedom didn't articulate it exactly the way you just did. Actually, their, their, their letter is sort of... I'm paraphrasing. But in any event, uh, they took the two Title VII cases off the active calendar. And although the Harris Funeral Home case was decided by the Sixth Circuit very early in the year, I think it was in March, uh, that has taken an awful long time to unfold. First, because the uh, ADF asked the court for an extension of time to file the cert petition. So they got an extension of time. They didn't file the cert they petition. They have more money than anybody in yeah. the world. They can't get but, this But they didn't. They, they didn't file the cert petition until July. Okay. Okay. So then there's another problem. The EEOC was the plaintiff in that right. case. And, of course, the uh, membership of the EEOC is changing as Trump appoints new commissioners. And uh, the question is the EEOC majority as of July was still Democratic. Okay, and was still eager to defend the victory that it won in the Sixth Circuit. Mm -hmm. But the Solicitor General, a Trump appointee, was no fan of that decision, and neither was his boss, the Attorney General, who doesn't think that gender identity discrimination is prohibited by Title VII. So now there's a little war playing itself out within the administration about who is going to respond to this cert petition and what position are they going to take. Yeah. And, I, I mean, luckily, the uh, plaintiff in that case had intervened, and so the plaintiff is represented, That's you know, as, as a respondent to the petition. So there is someone who's going to fight case, for the, the Sixth EEOC. Circuit decision. Okay. But, you know, the, the Solicitor General can preempt the EEOC and say, we're going to uh, present the administration's position, which is that the Sixth Circuit should be reversed. But the Solicitor General has twice asked for extensions of time 
to file its response while they're trying to sort this all out. And they just recently uh, were granted a further extension of time till October 24th to file their response. Mm. And once they have responded to the petition, the petitioner and the intervener have a right to file responses to that. So it could not, it's not going to be on the Supreme Court's conference schedule anytime in October because uh, the briefing on the Harris uh, funeral home petition is not going to be finished. So maybe in November, maybe in December, we'll hear whether the court is going to decide these cases. I I figured it was important to tell people about this because we did talk about these petitions in the prior podcast, and people must be wondering, how come we haven't heard anything? And they're the ones that are most likely to be granted by the court on LGBT issues this term. And there there are other cases in which petitions are likely to emerge. Uh, we've got more litigation about uh, wedding cakes and flowers right, and yeah. things like that. Those, are, those will take a while. Those will take a while. But, uh, I mean, there's a case pending in the Arizona Supreme Court, and there's a remand uh, on the uh, Arlene Flowers case. Right. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're still waiting on that. And there are other issues that are pending. And there is still... <laughs> Uh, the petition from Judge Vance Day. Remember him? Oh, yeah, sure. There, there's the his petition. Judge is that, behaving you know, badly. That it, it was unfair for him to be disciplined because he won't do same-sex marriage. Well, it was, put, it was actually put on the agenda for their October 5th conference, but we haven't heard anything yet. So that's where things stand on the Supreme Court at the moment. That's great. All right, so let's go ahead and take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a case involving an intersex plaintiff out of Colorado. We're back. In September, a federal judge in Denver ordered the U.S. State Department to issue gender-neutral passport to Dana Zim. Zim is a U.S. Navy veteran who is intersex and non-binary and does not identify as male or female. The State Department originally denied Dana's passport application because Dana could not accurately choose either male or female on the passport application form, and the form does not provide any other gender marker designation. This is the second time that Zim has won against the U.S. State Department for denying them a passport. In November, the same district court found that the State Department had violated the Federal Administrative Procedure Act and ordered the department to reconsider its binary-only gender policy. The State Department doubled down, of course it did, on its discriminatory male or female-only policy to deny Zim a passport, leading to today's ruling. This is a quote from Judge R. Brooke Jackson's opinion for the court. I find that the department failed to show that its decision-making process regarding the policy was rational. The authority to issue passports and prescribe rules for the issuance of passports under the Passport Act does not include the authority to deny an applicant on the grounds pertinent to basic identity. Art, tell us about this important case. Art, tell us about this important case. Okay, this is a very important case, partly because... It is, it may be one of the only published federal court decisions on an intersex issue uh-huh. so far. We, we have not had a lot of uh, litigation leading to published decisions, and uh, I think this decision is going to be published. Uh, well, it's, it's published on Lexis and Westlaw, but whether it will be officially published in FedSup is another story. Mm-hmm. But it will definitely be published if the State Department appeals, and I wouldn't put it past them. Of course they uh, will. I mean, this is quite a... Uh, a, a very firm rebuff of the government here because 
when you get right down to it, the government's reason for not accommodating Dana Zim is because. Right. I mean, they, they don't have that a reason. That really is I it. Mean, what happened is that the judge sent the case back to the State Department instead of ordering them the first time around to issue the passport, sent back to the State Department and said, come on, guys, figure this one out. You know, this shouldn't be too hard for you to figure out because uh, until 1976, you didn't have any gender designation on U.S. passports. And the only reason they adopted it, he pointed out, was to confirm to uh, the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, standards for machine-readable travel documents, okay? Because, you know, they, they have this problem that as we're modernizing, it's a good idea to be able to just swipe a passport over uh, a machine and verify it and enter it into a system when someone's entering a country. But you have to have uniform standards for that, so they're all machine-readable. So the International Civil Aviation Organization adopted a standard and when they adopted the standard, they added a gender field for passports. And back in those days, they put MRF. Mm -hmm. They have since grown up, accepted reality, and added a, an X for neither MRF. That's what X stands for, neither MRF. Or some mm -hmm. people say unknown or undetermined, but you could say neither MRF. Uh, so now the international standard is to allow for an X instead of an M or an so F. So the entire basis for them for... Right. The reason that prompted them in the first place. But now they, they figured they had to come up... Go back the, and make Under the Administrative Procedure Act, if you're going to take an action, you have to have a justification. Mm -hmm. And it has to be a rational justification. So they came back and they gave five reasons, all of which the judge said were ridiculous. Okay, so the first one, they said that requiring a gender selection of MRF helps to ensure the accuracy and verifiability of a passport holder's identity. And they said the reason for this is when they receive passport applications, they rely uh, for identification on state-issued documents such as birth certificates and driver's licenses, which tend to be MRF, although more and more states are now, I think there are at least a handful that have said they'll put an X on a driver's license. Mm -hmm. No one's putting an X on a birth certificate. Because well, at the time someone is, well, some parents are saying, I want an X because we don't know if this person is going to And New York City just out. amended its law yeah. to allow for that. But that, that's for retroactively. I see. You know, when someone uh, grows up and identifies and says that what's on my birth certificate is not accurate anymore, New York will allow you to change that on the birth certificate. And we'll allow you to put an X yeah. if you don't identify with MRF. Uh, but at, at any rate, the State Department says the, the documents that we rely on usually have MRF on them. And so we're trying to verify the application, and it's helpful for us. Secondly, the sex of a passport applicant is, quote, a vital data point in determining whether someone is entitled to a passport since the department must data match with other law enforcement systems all of which recognize only two sexes. For example, they have to check with the Do Not Fly registry and the FBI and you know criminal databases and all that kind of stuff. And they say the databases that we electronically match passport applications with only have MRF, and so this is going to cause a complication. In other words, we're going to have to get some software jock in to change this, mm. which we're going to have to pay for. Okay. So it will be inconvenient. And the judge says, well, inconvenience isn't a ground for denying someone the right to a passport. Mm -hmm. uh, they said continued use of a binary option for the sex data point is the most reliable means to determine eligibility. 
but it isn't the only means to determine eligibility. They also argued that consistency of sex data of, a, of the sex data point ensures easy verification of a passport holder's identity in domestic contexts because very few states have an X. But, you know, some states do have an X. And they're, they're all pointing out reasons why they consider it optimum to have M or F. And a lot but of not, other countries right. have, have but, an X. Yeah, but, but these aren't reasons why you couldn't deal with an X. And right. You couldn't deal perfectly well with an X. Uh, they said uh, that introducing a third sex marker on passports could introduce verification difficulties in name checks and complicated automated data sharing among other agencies, which would cause operational complications. Oh my God. In other words, it's bureaucratic gobbledygook. <laughs> Well, you picture the the computer systems that the State Department probably has still functioning from... Right. They probably still have a Dell. <laughs> well, uh, many of us have Dells. But oh, they do? They're new, new generation Gateway? Dells. Maybe a gateway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then they said, there is no generally accepted medical consensus on how to define a third sex. Okay. Yeah, but they received expert testimony in this case that there is a consensus. Well, what can you do? Basically, the judge said, look, I looked at all these things and I'm not convinced. These are not good justifications under the Administrative Procedure Act for denying a U.S. citizen, a military veteran in good standing who's not a criminal and who is totally qualified for a passport on this technicality that they refuse to identify as MRF. And uh, this is uh, Dana Zim was identified female at birth. So the birth certificate says F. So the State Department says, well, we can put what's on your birth certificate unless you prove to us that your gender has changed to M. Mm. But that's not the issue here. Right. You know, it's like they don't understand the difference between transgender and intersex. Yeah. Which are two different phenomena. They're related in some sense because they all involve uh, sexual identity. But uh, And the inconvenience no. and expense argument was asserted with no data. Yeah, they said, you, you haven't told us how much it would cost or how complicated it would be. And uh, I think so many other countries have done this. I mean, Australia's done it. The UK has done it. Right. Other countries have shown that it can be done mm -hmm. and presumably at reasonable cost because if it was at uh, some exorbitant cost, they wouldn't have done it. So uh, the judge, I think it's a very common sense decision. Uh, and uh, the judge says, Dana has been pursuing a passport for close to four years now. Yeah. I grant Dana's request for injunctive relief and enjoin the department from relying upon its binary-only gender marker policy to withhold the requested passport from Dana. And uh, Dana had requested a writ of mandamus, but the judge said, it's, I give you an injunction. That's enough. You don't need a writ of mandamus. <laughs> so the question is, is the Trump administration going to say, okay, we will comply, or is the Trump administration going to say, we're going to take this to the Supreme Court and see what Brett Kavanaugh has to say about this? I know which I, I know. think they're going to do, but... Well, I think they should comply. After all, we have reports that Donald Trump has just nominated an openly gay man to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, who's a member of the Federalist Society. <laughs> oh my God. So, I mean, that'll be a story for next month. There was actually action taken on the openly lesbian judge out of the, in the district court, the nominee uh, to the... Um, a district court Mary in Rowland. Illinois. Yeah. yeah. So she was confirmed? No, she was just moved through committee, but a bunch of Republican committee members voted no. Um, Cruz was among them. 
So I don't Of course exactly. not. You can't put an openly lesbian person on the federal court. Um, we I, only well, have a handful of them now, and, you know, including senior judges. It, it's pretty It's pretty outrageous. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting time. Well, I'm waiting for us to have our first intersex federal district judge. That uh, that would be great. Uh, even even here in New York, we would love to have um, some more gender diversity. Um, all genders right. reflected. We, we, do, on, we don't have we don't have any transgender uh, judges on our courts. I mean, the only transgender there are two transgender judges in the country. Right. Out of Texas, uh, Victoria Kolakowski out of California, and, and Phyllis, uh, Fry. Phyllis Fry out of Texas. In, in Houston, That's it. Yeah. Well, great. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a federal district court case out of Wisconsin. And we're back. In Boyden v. Conlin, the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Wisconsin found that the state's exclusion of gender-affirming procedures from the state employees' health insurance coverage constitutes sex discrimination in violation of both Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Section 1557 of the ACA prohibits discrimination and the denial of benefits under a health program or activity on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, age, or disability. The court also found liability against the state on the Equal Protection Clause claim that was asserted by the two transgender women plaintiffs who were employed by the state of Wisconsin. So this is a really good ruling. Art, tell us about it. Well, it's it's important on several grounds. First of all, Uh, Although the Seventh Circuit has uh, staked out a very forward position on sexual orientation, uh, sex discrimination, uh, under Title VII, they haven't yet ruled on it in a gender identity context under Title VII, but they have under Title IX in the Whitaker case involving a transgender high school student. Uh, So this judge says, you know, they've basically said that because of sex includes because of gender identity in the Title IX case. And the Hively case in which they did sexual orientation used rather broad language about uh, how to interpret sex there. So I see no reason not to embrace that for Title VII in this case, which is important because although this is a public sector case, Title VII also applies in the private sector. So it's also a ruling on the private sector under Title VII. Uh, So uh, transgender people who are covered under employee benefit plans, Mm -hmm. uh, that's a term or condition of employment under Title VII. And so this means private uh, sector plans would also be covered by this ruling. Uh, In addition, of course, the Affordable Care Act applies to private sector plans uh, as well. Uh, And the Equal Protection Clause, of course, only applies to public sector plans, but that, of course, is pretty significant as well. Uh, So this is like a triple-barrel ruling, uh, which is really, really useful for us in terms of uh, what was going on here, Uh, because the state of Wisconsin... Uh, adopted this exclusion way back in the 90s uh, at a time when it wasn't controversial to block it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now it's controversial to block it because we've had our transgender moment. I I think uh, society is moving towards uh, rapid acceptance of gender identity and uh, I think support for bans on gender identity discrimination are growing. The big test of that will come in November when Massachusetts votes on a ballot measure uh, proposing to repeal the ban on gender identity discrimination that was enacted by the legislature there. Uh, so we'll see how far the public has come along. But in the meantime, uh, in this in this decision, 
I think it's also important that the judge is staking out a position in opposition to the Trump administration uh, because uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions issued a memorandum saying that gender identity discrimination is not covered by any federal civil rights laws uh, unless it's specifically mentioned. And it's specifically mentioned only in the uh, anti-violence statute, uh, the hate crime statute. But otherwise, gender identity doesn't figure in, in American federal statutory law yet. Uh, and it seems the judge found that ultimately the reason why uh, they continued with this exclusion was because a federal district judge in Texas, in response to a lawsuit brought by several states, uh, responded with a preliminary injunction against the Department of Health and Human Services affirmatively enforcing uh, the ACA ban on gender identity discrimination as proclaimed by the Obama administration as mm. their interpretation, okay. an interpretation which has pretty much been withdrawn by the Trump administration. But that preliminary injunction uh, basically gave the uh, relevant administrative body in Wisconsin permission to reinstate the exclusion, which they had voted to remove, mm. interestingly, in response to this lawsuit. They had voted to remove the exclusion, uh, and then they rescinded their vote uh, because of this injunction, and also because the governor of the state, a Republican, urged them to do so. Uh, I think the governor was embarrassed uh, to his constituency that a state board had voted to remove the exclusion. It's, it's very convoluted, the politics behind all this. Uh, but uh, there's a sequel, uh, which we should mention, even though it happened after the end of uh, September. The sequel is that the case was put down for a jury trial on damages for the two named plaintiffs. Okay. And the two named plaintiffs in the case won a jury verdict for $780,000. I did see that. Yes, the ACLU represented them. And, uh, of course, <coughs> jury verdicts are subject to being whittled down by the courts on motion, and, or they could be appealed. But as of now, uh, there's a jury verdict of $780,000, which was awarded uh, on, uh, I think it's October 13th, yeah. by a federal jury in Wisconsin. That's incredible. So uh, Discrimination hurts and it's costly. Right, because, I, I mean, one of these people actually went ahead and did the procedures and borrowed the money from somebody, and yeah. uh, so they're mm -hmm. going to be reimbursed in full, and the other is going to be able to go ahead and it's going to be paid for. And there's all kinds of compensatory remedies here, because I mean, we're talking not just about Title VII, which has rather limited relief, uh, but we're also talking about ACA, and we're talking about the Equal Protection Clause. So the jury... Uh, had the capacity to really try to award everything that they thought these plaintiffs were entitled to without worrying about statutory caps. So we'll see how, how that stands up. But I mean, it's so important to remember that we're talking about when, whenever we, we, we talk about the important statutory and constitutional principles at stake in these cases, that we're talking about basic access to health care, access to identity documents so that you can travel internationally, um, yeah, traveling by traveling while trans is very challenging indeed. if you don't have appropriate documentation. Indeed, and so um, it's it's really nice to have an update in a case where we're talking about a jury looking at the plaintiffs and the harm, assessing it, and awarding that kind of an award. 
Well, we've talked we've talked enough about the alliance defending freedom. So, for Boyden v. Conlin, let's definitely give props to the um, the, ACLU. the ACLU and to the Zim case to Lambda Legal, um, who have both been you know doing a, 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 a carrying a heavy load and doing some really great work, despite the fact that a lot of this funding on on the other side. Um, you know, folks are really looking, ADF, the Beckett Fund, to pick these fights. Right. ADF is, you know, representing the funeral home in the Title VII gender identity case. So uh, we'll see. They, they, they actually have a pretty good box score in the Supreme Court, ADF. They pick their cases carefully and they appeal to the uh, current Supreme Court puts a big weight on free exercise of religion and puts very little weight on the Establishment Clause. As Justice Kagan noted, weaponizing the First Amendment. Right. Um, and now they've got a more reliable majority to do just that, at least in the context of um, LGBT folks. Right. All right. So on that happy note, let's end with um, an of note segment that I hope is a little bit more uplifting. Well, I, I hope so. Uh since very early in the history of gay rights, uh-huh. gay church organists have struggled with discrimination claims. Yeah. Uh, in fact, one of the earliest cases I remember from the 1970s, there was a case in San Francisco shortly after they passed their gay rights ordinance of a gay organist who was fired by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which is the right-wing Presbyterian church. And he brought a charge under this new ordinance, which did not have any religious exemptions in it, And the court said, oh, but under the First Amendment Free Exercise Clause, we can't require a church to include as part of its worship team, the organist is part of the worship team, because they they do the services, we can't require them to take a gay organist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there is some argument to be made that organists who tend also to be the director of the choir and to play a role in selecting the music for the service, even though they're not preaching or leading prayer as such... uh, that they are entitled to the ministerial exemption under Title VII. Mm-hmm. And so we have this case from San Francisco uh, where uh, we had uh, a, uh, a gay man who is an organist, Shandor Demokovich, or Demkovich, uh, at, a, uh, at the St. Andrew the Apostle Parish of the Archdiocese of Chicago. Okay. And he was known by the people employing him to be gay. Wait, of Chicago or San Francisco? This is Chicago. This, uh, the, the early case I talked about from the 1970s oh. <laughs> was San Francisco. This is Chicago. Oh, okay, gotcha, so, gotcha. So, you know, uh, and they were fine with him. Yeah. You know, because, frankly, if the Catholic Church is, is not going to employ gay organists, they're going to have a shortage. I mean, I have it on good authority from a good friend who is an organist and who has attended the annual conventions of the American Guild of Organists, that it's basically a gay fest. You know, gay men are drawn to being church organists. What can I say? It's one of those, it's like hairdressing. It's one of those professions. I'm sure it's a gay fest. Yes, it is a gay fest. So so Mr. Demkovich was, uh, well, he was unhappy because he was being hassled by the pastor of the church, not because he was gay, but because he was a diabetic who was struggling with his weight. And he was being harassed because of his weight. But he was also being harassed when he got married to a guy. And, you know, that's a problem, too. Uh, After marrying his same-sex partner, the pastor came and said, well, we can't have you here anymore. So he was fired. Oh, my God. He was fired, and he sued under Title VII, 
and he sued under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Okay. And he, he claimed discrimination and hostile environment. Yep. And the court said, well, ministerial exemption on Title Seven. You know, they, uh, but uh, the court said, I can't see a ministerial exemption on the Americans with Disabilities Act. I think he still has a hostile environment claim on the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah. And so the court dismissed a lot of the complaint, but allowed to stand the uh, hostile environment claim under the Americans with Disabilities Act, refused to d- dismiss that. So perhaps the uh, the insurance company for the Archdiocese of Chicago can come through with some money for Mr. Demkovich. Yeah. Because and in un- the meantime, find another church, folks. Yeah, I mean, there are liberal churches out there with uh, that have organists. They're harassing you know. this man because of... Because of his weight. I mean... Making snide comments and all kinds of yeah. stuff. You know, so... I mean, it's, it's one of those, you, you read the facts of these cases and you say, and this, this harasser is a pastor of the church who's supposed to, supposed to be about love and acceptance. Yeah, that never surprises you know. me. All right, well, um, that's... But, a, but it's a happy note that he still has a, he still has a lawsuit. <laughs> that, that's good. We'll take what we can get. Great. Well, thank you so much for listening. And before we conclude, I did want to give a programming note. We are launching at Legal an LGBTQ and A speaker series. And if you were really excited about the segment that we talked about with respect to the Indian Supreme Court ruling, you're going to love our first installment of this important speaker series. It's called The Global Fight for LGBT People and the Freedom to Marry. We are really excited. The program is going to include an intimate conversation about world developments in the continuing fight for the freedom to marry, as well as efforts to protect the rights of LGBTQ people across the globe from human rights abuses. We are going to be speaking with Evan Wolfson, founder and president of the Freedom to Marry, the campaign that won marriage in the U.S., and Ryan Thorson, a clinical lecturer on international human rights at Yale Law School and researcher with Human Rights Watch's LGBT rights program. This is going to be super fun. It's $50 for non-members. If you're a member of Legal, it's free. And if you're a student and you want to join Legal, don't forget, it's also free. Please go to our website, www lgbtbarny.org and make sure your membership is current to join us. Uh, It's at Nixon Peabody on Thursday, November 15th, 6 to 8.30 p.m. There will be refreshments served so you can listen to the program, you can get your drink on, and you can network. Thanks again for listening. Please continue to follow us on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. And make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Once again, I'm Eric Lesh. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon.